Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the FT Money Show from Investors Chronicle and FT Money. And welcome to the FT Money Show. In today's programme, unfair bank charges. How much longer must customers wait for compensation? Emerging markets, is it easier or safer to invest in them through UK blue chips? Long-term investing, is it better to be in or out of the market during volatile periods? And we have some good news and bad news on cashbacks that can cut the cost of travel. I'm Matthew Vincent from FT Money, and I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with the help of my colleagues from FT Money, Steve Lodge. Hello. And Elaine Moore. Hello. So let's start with the money news. This week, several UK banks announced that they would appeal against a recent High Court ruling allowing the Office of Fair Trading to investigate unfair overdraft charges. At stake is an estimated £3.5 billion which the banks have taken each year by charging customers for unauthorised overdrafts. Earlier this year, the OFT won the first round of the court battle, but an appeal could now see the issue being dragged out into next year. Meanwhile, several high street names, including Halifax, RBS NatWest and Nationwide, have been raising their overdraft interest rates. Um, so... Elaine, is news of this appeal yet more bad news for account holders? It is. The appeal is all part of a process that is going to take a very long time anyway. But what's happened is that the whole process has been put back by another year. And there are a series of movements the banks can do again once this appeal has gone through. If they want to delay it still further, they can go to the House of Lords, they can apply for a judicial review. So if the banks want to, they can drag their feet and make this whole case take a very long time. Which I would imagine is exactly what they will they will what they'll do. do. Exactly. The other thing is, is that I think that uh, customers can only apply for six years' worth of backdated uh, charges. So the longer this, dra- this drags out the less of your charges you could get back if it goes for three years. You've lost three years, so essentially, a, of charges. So it's a very calculating move on the part of the banks, by the sounds of it. That's what it appears to be, although the banks would say that they're well within their rights to appeal this and that they don't agree that the OFT should be able to uh, examine the fairness of the charges. So if you're a customer 
uh, who, who thinks um, there's been overcharging for or unfair charging for unauthorised overdrafts. Um, is it now too late to add your name to the to the list of people claiming compensation? No, nope. you should still be applying for your charges, or that's what the consumer groups are saying. You should still make an application for your charges. They will then be put into a sort of backlog, and when the case is finally decided. The, uh, the county courts will go through this backlog and decide whether or not the cases sh- the charges should be refunded. Um, but while the case is going on, all of these claims have been frozen, so you won't get anything now. And, of course, also while uh, this is dragging on, we've seen um, certain banks increase their um, overdraft interest rates as opposed to charges and at the same time cut the interest that they pay on credit balances. I mean, Steve, is this um, a classic case of banks trying to um, claw back money from people who never go uh, overdrawn? Well, yes. I mean, Matthew, at, at the risk of being, you know, sort of curmudgeonly devil's advocate here, all this debate about fairness of bank charges, myself, selfishly, and probably most listeners, will be the sort of people who are always in credit. So they want the absolute best credit deal. Now, of course, there is a danger of believing the bank's PR about all this. But the degree to which we in credit get a good deal is partly funded by the fact that people are penalised heavily when they do go overdrawn, felt bounce a cheque or whatever. And don't forget as well, I mean, another aspect to all this as well, the degree to which the banks get whacked on these charges and compensation is yet another hit to all those poor, forlorn bank shareholders. Indeed. So I suppose uh, the side of the argument that you uh, come down on will basically depend on whether or not you're in, you're in the black or in the red. Um, if, if you are in credits, you don't really want to see customers or the OFT mm-hmm. win this battle. You want banks to win their appeal. Well, quite. I mean, I think the international comparisons show, I mean, again, there's a danger of believing banks PR here, but uh, Brits in credit do relatively well across the world you know the u.s is known for charging per uh, per transaction regardless of whether you're in credit or not you know people will know the tradition of uh, or the, the tradition of modern time of uk banking uh, personal banking has been free of in credit and not just free of in credit but competition has driven interest rates up to in some cases near to savings rate levels but, Elaine, I suppose it's important to remember that um, at the heart of this case is unauthorised overdraft charges. And it's quite possible, if you're, you know, even if you're relatively well off, to, to go just a little bit overdrawn. And it's those people who have been hit by these charges. Um, so how, how do they actually go about getting their name on the list of possible claimants? If you are interested in claiming back uh, an overdraft fee that you think has been unfair, there are a number of consumer sites that you can go onto and download letter templates that will show you exactly what to do and there's a sort of process that you go to you write to the bank, they write back to you you'll then take it to a county court if they don't accept your claim So you might as well get yourself onto the list uh, even if it is going to take... Well, yes, exactly Exactly. uh, It it may take years but... um, uh, you never know what might come out of it. We'll obviously um, update listeners on um, how the case pans out in the uh, months and years to come. And for more uh, on the cost of current account banking, look out for the article in this week's FT Money in the weekend FT on 24th and 25th of May and online at ft.com forward slash money. You can also send in your questions for us to answer by emailing us at ask.ftyourmoney at ft.com. 
Still to come in the programme, long-term investing. Should you worry about market volatility or just hold on for the ride? And we have some good news and bad news on cashback cards and travel costs. But first, emerging markets. If you want to profit from the faster economic growth rates being seen in Latin America, Asia, Eastern Europe and other emerging markets, should you buy into a Chilean, Indian or even Kazakhstani mining company? Or are you better off buying shares in a big FTSE 100 mining company that has operations in all of those countries? Well, fund manager Fidelity has done some research showing that 20% of the sales of British blue-chip companies now come from regions outside the US and Europe, including some of the most rapidly emerging markets in the world. So is the best route to all of this growth actually via London EC4? Well, to find out, Alice Ross of FT Money met up with Tom Ewing, manager of the Fidelity UK Growth Fund, and she began by asking him how the FTSE now gives so much exposure to these emerging markets. Well, you know, there's a tendency to think that the FTSE is made up of a lot of exposure to the UK economy. That's not actually really true, and we need to understand there's a difference between the UK economy and the UK stock market. If you do some analysis just on the FTSE 100, you need to understand that uh, actually only 35% of the revenues of the FTSE 100 come from the UK. Um, About 45% is from the US and Europe, but then 20% comes from the rest of the world. That obviously varies quite a lot. A number of uh, retailers and banks will be very exposed to the UK economy, but you only need to look elsewhere at the resources companies, the oil companies, the miners, and a number of the big consumer staples companies to understand that if you invest in the FTSE 100, you're getting an extremely international spread to your investments. So where's the main area that we should be looking to in terms of emerging markets? What's your focus? Well, I think there's growth going on in in many regions, a lot of it driven by the rise in natural resources prices around the world, whether it be um, the oil price, which is helping some markets in in Western Africa or in Russia or in the Middle East. Um, But I think one of the – certainly a a key theme for the investments in my UK growth fund is companies which have exposure to the remarkable rise of China. I think what's going on in China is, isn't really comparable to anything that's happened globally since you know, the, perhaps the industrialization of the U.S. in the early part of this century. Uh, 400 million people are moving from the countryside areas to the urban areas in China, which is you know, the biggest movement of people in history. Um, China are building the equivalent of about eight Londons every year for the next 10 years, which, as you can imagine... The, uh, the demand for raw materials and for all the trappings of, of an urban lifestyle, which uh, the Chinese now want, creates massive opportunities and, and demands for, for, um, for, for resources and for the services and goods provided by companies all around the world. The FTSE actually has a wonderful position in terms of investments in uh, the major mining companies, the largest four diversified mining companies in the world, Rio Tinto, BHP Billiton, Anglo-American and Extrata, are all listed on the London Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. So if an investor in this country is looking to put £100 into the FTSE 100, they're actually at that time putting about £12 or £12 into the, these very mm-hmm. well-positioned mining companies. So I look at those. There's also the oil companies where, um, if we, we do, obviously this is really an issue of the day with oil now trading at $135. The rise in the oil price really began when um, China started to import oil in about 2001, 2002. Um, and, and that's likely to continue. At the moment, China has 
four times as many people as the U.S., but uses a quarter of the oil. And so I think that the increase in the, the continuity or the rise in demand for oil is likely to continue in a, in a world where supply is very, very tight. And as a result, you know, I think oil prices are likely to remain high. I suppose the question really is, if these emerging markets are doing so well, why not invest directly into an emerging market fund? Why invest into a UK growth fund? What's the advantage of doing it that way? I think if you invest in the UK and in companies in the UK, you benefit from um, a certain reduction in risk implied by higher governance standards and by the demands that are placed on companies which want to list in the UK in terms of checking that their their accounts are are filed every year and have Mm. been looked into by the the right accountants and auditors. Managements of these companies will tend to visit us in London or we're able to go out and visit them because they want to maintain a robust dialogue with shareholders. And all of those things give me more confidence that I'm making a a safe investment on behalf of my fund holders, whereas, you know, sort of just taking a punt on a small Chinese company listed in Shanghai is, is, is sort of subject to an awful lot more uncertainties which may not be what the uh, the average UK investor isn't looking for. That was Alice Ross talking to Tom Ewing from Fidelity and for more on this indirect route into emerging markets look out for Alice's article in this week's FT Money in the weekend FT on the 24th and 25th of May. Coming up we have good news and bad news on cashbacks and cheap flights, hotels and more. Before that though, long-term investing strategies. We all know that in the long term, equities tend to outperform bonds and cash. So if you've got time on your side, you want to be in the stock market. But that's easier said than done when markets fall nearly 9% in a month, as they did this January. Volatile markets like these tend to make investors nervous, particularly because the days or weeks when the stock market falls tend to receive much more media attention than the gradual but larger price rises. However, research proves that sitting out volatility can mean missing out on the best up days in the market too, which can have a devastating effect on long-term returns. So to discover the secrets of successful long-term investing, Moira O'Neill, the personal finance editor of Investors Chronicle, spoke to Kate Warne, market strategist at Edward Jones, and she began by asking her why investors should stay put in volatile markets. Well, we think investors should stay invested because during market volatility, we're all familiar with the down days, but in many cases, they're quite good single days where the market moves up. And it's those best days in the market that contribute a lot to long-term returns. So investors need to stay invested to be sure they're in the market on those very good days. Um, and those missing those small number of good days in the market, um, how, how big a difference does that make? Well, they make quite a big difference. If you look back to the end of 1968, that's more than 10,000 individual days. If you miss just the 10 best days during that entire time period, it's more than 39 years, then you would have reduced your long-term return from 7.5% to 5.6%. In fact, if you made a 10,000-pound investment back at the end of 1968 and stayed in the market the entire time without reinvesting dividends, at the end of the first quarter of 2008, you would have had more than 168,000 pounds. But if you just missed those 10 best days, you would have ended up with just 84,000 pounds, or almost 50% less. 
gosh, what a big difference. Um, and for those investors who, who weren't in the markets in the first three months of this year, what, what did they miss? Well, it turns out they missed three of the 50 best days since the end of 1968. In fact, there were three days where the returns were more than 3.5%, and that's part of why we're always talking about staying invested. You never know when some of those best days will happen. And in fact, we may have missed them in the first quarter because everyone heard about the bad days in the market, but very few people heard about these good days. Wow. Well, what what would you say to investors who are still feeling uneasy about stock markets um, now? Well, we would say put money into the market. Certainly, volatility makes everyone a bit nervous, but frequently volatile markets trend higher. So even though you're going to hear about all the bad days, there are going to be these good days as well. And if you look historically, it turns out that the all share has risen about three quarters of the time. So what you're going to be doing is picking up the long-term trend of shares moving higher, even though short-term, what you're going to be focused on is the volatility. I'm sure investors will find that um, very reassuring, particularly those who were brave enough to, to stay invested um, earlier this year. Um, but now we're moving into, well, commentators say we're moving into a period of slower economic growth. And I wondered what advice you have for investors in terms of what types of investments they should consider holding in their portfolios going forward? Well, investors really should continue to own equities because they provide the highest returns on average over time. But we also think for people who are a bit nervous, it makes sense to own fixed income investments and to focus your equity investments on shares of companies that historically have paid dividends and increased those dividends. That way, what you're getting in both cases is some income that can make you feel a bit more comfortable, and both of those tend to be a, li a little bit less volatile than other shares. So we'd be emphasizing those two areas for people who are a bit nervous today. That was Moira O'Neill talking to Kate Warne of Edward Jones. And for more on long-term investing, look out for Moira's article in Investors Chronicle on sale from the 23rd of May. And finally today, it's good news, bad news on cashback cards that can save you money on your troubles. Um, Steve, you're a big fan of cashback cards. You're a well-known international traveller. This must appeal to you. International man of money back, as Indeed. I think I've been called. Um, yes, American Express, um, which has had a lot of cashback cards over the years, has got a new card out this week called Blue Sky. Um, it's cashback. You earn cashback on all spending, and importantly, you earn it at the relatively high rate of 1.25%. Of, um, of the money that you spend on the card. Yes, exactly, yes. So rebates, and, and at worst, these cards are less than... Um, uh, 0.5 or less. So 1.25 is good, and that's a kind of flat rate. It's not tiered. Some of these rates of up to 5% only last a short period of time, or indeed, you know, you, you get 0.5 and, unless you spend a lot of money when you get 1 or whatever it is. Um, and as I say, it's importantly on all spending, so it's slightly confusing. The, the, the bad news in a kind of weird upside-down sort of way is that you can only redeem the cash back against travel. So against subsequent travel spending, which is fine in a way, it doesn't really matter. Most people travel, most credit card holders are travellers, um, are well-to-do people who, who from, you know, might buy flights, a hotel, car hire, etc. 
Um, so that's one aspect of the kind of kind of quirkiness compared to a, a super flexible cashback card where the cashback is exactly what it says it is. You can spend it on anything. Um, you another downside of this card is you need to spend at least four thousand pounds. So yes, yeah, so cashback tends to be you know as we're saying this kind of point five point one percent of um, of what you spend. Here you need to spend four thousand pounds. Sorry, to, to, it's not within a year; it's oh, an right. ongoing basis. But you you don't get anything until you've spent four thousand pounds. If you see, so you get basically right. you get fifty pounds per four thousand pounds spent. Right. So you need to keep spending in £4,000 lumps, or yeah. so to speak, to get the reward. Um, and the other aspect of all this is as well, I mean, most international men of money back favour um, pure cashback cards, ultimately, where if they are high spenders, as obviously I am, then they get a, a higher rate. Um, it, it is important to get the right card and so on. But... This card is pretty good, and, and Amex says it's aimed at people who are lower spenders. You know, pay, maybe people who just who don't have to be lower income. They just are people who don't put an awful lot on their credit card. Um, and in turn, at people who, by definition, want to travel. If you don't travel, you're never going to see your cash back with this card. That's the downside, so I suppose. That is the limitation, I suppose. I mean, Elaine, do you, like the, do you like the sound of this particular offer? Well, I was just wondering, would you have the card on top of another card? Would you just keep this card in your wallet for... Travel, or because if you can get a better cashback deal on other cards, why would you have this one? Well, it's a good cashback deal. I mean, just to make it absolutely clear, it's you can you get the points which turn into the cashback on any spending, but you can only redeem it against travel. I mean, that's the slightly confusing element of it. Oh, I see. Um, most most reward cards. I mean, re- travel based reward cards are well known. Everyone will have heard of Air Miles, for example. And there are, you know, some experts out there say that well, if what you're really into is a kind of travel reward style card. Amex has its own BA card, for example, where people who spend more than £20,000 get a free partner flight. So wherever they go, wherever they fly, their partner comes too. That might be more or less rewarding, depending on your point of view. Um, you know, so there are other cards like that. But typically, those travel-based reward cards, the, the effective uh, worth of the rewards is less than pure cashback. And, of course, pure cashback has the flexibility. This kind of combines the two, gives you pure cashback, but only cashback redeeming travel. Right. Um, uh, well, just, well just, just, to, just to sort of uh, go through the hierarchy of cashback. Um, so is this particular card better in terms of cashback than other cashback cards out there? Many, yes. Right. So... I'm getting. I'm get, if, if I travel, then this card will give me 1.25 percent, subject to the catch that they only give it to me every time I spend four thousand pounds. Right. Whereas the classic Best Buy money back card out there is gets more confusing. Amex's Platinum money back card, which take it out tomorrow and you get five percent for the first three months. Thereafter, you get tiered levels of cashback between 0.5 and 1.5 percent depending on your spending, with the high rewards kicking in at the high levels of spending. But we're talking, I, I forget the level, but it's at the order of £10,000 a year. So that's quite chunky spending by some people's standards. This might suit more of a mass market. The travel thing, in a way, is a kind of odd little wheeze almost. It's, it's, it's almost an irrelevancy. And, but it, but, but it's, it is relevant in as much as you'll never see the cash back unless you travel. Yes. Well, Elaine, this to me sounds like it's a, it's a card for... Uh, only really the likes of Steve, these international men of, uh, exactly. of travel and cashback. 
Well, it sounds a bit as if people, as if it might be a scheme where people might forget to use the cashback facility. If if you have to remember when you go on a holiday, or when you're travelling abroad for business, that's when you you get the money back. And I also was wondering what would happen if you uh, didn't make your monthly payments. No, oh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is a very important point that, as with all reward cards, cashback or you know green shield stamps, remember them, or air miles and so on. The, the key point with these, these are aimed at people who... You don't remember Green Shield stamps. No idea. <laughs> the, the, um, the point with all these cards is they're only suitable for people who pay off their balance every month. Start paying interest and the high cost of that interest will more than swamp any rewards. If you're someone who, who wants to borrow on a credit card, there are plenty of 0% deals around, plenty of 0% balance transfer deals, plenty of long-term low rates. That said, this card does have a 0% deal for the first six months of purchases. Um, but if you're a borrower, this ain't for you. Right. Well, if you'd like uh, further details explaining exactly how the cashback works, exactly what the costs are. Um, do look out for Steve's deal of the week in uh, FT Money of the Weekend FT on the 24th and 25th of May. And that's all we've got time for in this week's FT Money show. Remember that you can email your views and your questions to ask.ftyourmoney at ft.com and we'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Steve and Elaine. Goodbye. goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.